On the podcast this week, I have a very special guest. It was both exciting and daunting to get a chance to speak with Paul Brest, who's come all the way from Stanford University in California. Now, if you don't know who Paul is, he was previously the dean of Stanford Law School, specializing in constitutional law. He then moved over to head up the Hewlett Foundation, where he focused on philanthropy and began to explore whether investors could contribute to social impact. After 12 years there, he returned to Stanford as Professor Emeritus. He's in Sydney to talk and share ideas about all things philanthropy. He's here as a guest of Perpetual Investments, and I was lucky enough to get some time to ask some questions of my own. I was a little daunted to speak with Paul because I first came across his work through his writing in the Stanford Social Innovation Review. His definitions and dissection of impact investing helped to strike a path for the sector's development, but it was also the foundation of my own understanding. And Paul continues to fuel debate with his unapologetic views on what it means to have genuine, enduring impact. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. Paul was generous with his insights. He explained the genesis of his latest book and what he views as smart philanthropy. And as you'd expect, our conversation soon veered towards investing, and we dug into the details of how impact investors distinguish themselves from mainstream capital sources through the tried and true private equity skill set of identifying opportunities long before anybody else. It was great to get a chance to quiz Paul. I learned a lot and I hope you take away some insights too. If you enjoyed it, leave me a review on iTunes. And for all the links, you can head to the website at johntreadgold.com. All right, nothing left to do but dive in to my chat with Paul Brest. Here we go. Look, your voice and your writing, it's been really foundational for me and my understanding of, of social impact really broadly. So thanks for your work. Have you ha- had a chance to enjoy any of of the sites of Sydney yet. I know Perpetual run a tight ship, but have they let you get out and about? We haven't been here long enough to enjoy the sites, but we I was here several years ago and look forward to seeing more of Sydney. Good stuff. Now, um, let's start with maybe just some comparisons. What are your observations of the Australian philanthropic landscape as you land in Sydney, I guess, in comparison with the US where you live and work, but also globally? I've never thought that tourists should observe their host country on quick visits. So, you know, I've, I've had interactions since yesterday afternoon with some of Perpetual's clients and friends, and people are thinking about the same questions and asking the same questions that U.S. philanthropists are thinking about and asking. Very good. Well, well let's then start with your book. It's called Money Well Spent, A Strategic Plan for Smart philanthropy. Maybe you can tell us what is smart philanthropy? The essential goal of the book, which is the goal of strategic philanthropy, is to help philanthropists be clear about what they're trying to achieve, either for them or for the organizations they support to have a clear strategy or plan for achieving the goal, 
a plan for monitoring progress toward the goal and a plan for evaluating whether their strategies are based on sound empirical judgments and whether they actually achieved impact with their philanthropy. So it's essentially a problem-solving and strategy process. I'm, I'm keen to understand how you see the current interplay between philanthropists who use the, the traditional grant funding model as opposed to impact investors who are investing in the hope of, of both a, a social and a financial return. Are the two strategies complementary and running in parallel or are philanthropists shifting towards investing? So the goal of any socially motivated funding, whether it's grants or whether it's investments, is to actually have impact, to make a difference, to to make the world a better place in some particular respects than it would have been without their work. Just going back to philanthropy for a moment, the reason for having a strategy and for having evaluation is to have a a reasonably good chance of having impact and to actually know whether you're having impact. And that's the goal of socially motivated investing as well. That is, you want your investment to have impact, not just to be something that you can be happy with. Yeah, and so it sounds like measurement then is the common line there, and then that's so vital, described as being very difficult in impact investing, which is, I guess, a more modern iteration. Um, Do you think that the evaluation, the measurement processes are are similar between the two streams? So let me describe where they are identical and where there's a difference. Begin with the organization that is actually receiving the funding, whether it's grant funding or whether it's investment funding. And the question is, is that organization making a difference in the lives of its beneficiaries. And in the case of grant making, the organization is most likely a nonprofit organization, you know, say serving serving poor communities in one way or another or trying to improve the environment. And in the case of impact investing, the funding typically goes to a for-profit organization that has two goals. One is to make money for its investors, but the other is also to improve the world in a social or environmental way. The evaluation of whether those organizations that are receiving the funding are having impact is no different for a nonprofit or for-profit organization. Imagine, uh, to take a kind of simple example, that you have an organization that's trying to reduce drug addiction. And some some organizations do that that are nonprofits and some do it where they're actually trying to make revenue as a for-profit organization. The fundamental question of whether they are actually reducing drug addiction or curing it among their clients is exactly the same. And the way you would evaluate their impact is exactly the same. To give you an example of an ideal method of evaluation, which you can't always do, which is randomized controlled trials, you would assign people who are in need of and desire treatment either to an organization providing this kind of drug addiction to treatment or to some other organization. And you would then use traditional evaluation techniques to learn whether this organization was improving outcomes for their clients compared to another organization. And whether they're improving outcomes or not is the same whether it's a for-profit or non-profit organization. Yeah, and, and, and perhaps the uh, rubber hits the road for 
for-profit organizations because there's money on the line and you know you need to make that return what is i guess a subjective improvement in an outcome and something that in the past, you know, is often a, a non-monetary factor is suddenly given a monetary value. So I don't know, I'm just trying to think of that perhaps being a distinction that's really important. And, and it's, I think it's always, you know, evaluation has always been important in philanthropy, but impact investors still complain about the difficulty of it and doing it accurately and being able to compare outcomes across portfolios. So it's trying to use the philanthropic example in history to inform that, but yeah, you know, I, I think as you say, if they're both trying to have positive social outcomes, then then the way they measure, the philosophy of, of how and why they measure is the same, but uh, perhaps just the methods are different. No, I'm saying the methods are the same also. You would use a randomized controlled trial to measure, ideally, if you know, there are other, there are other evaluation techniques, but you would ex- use exactly the same impact measurement technique for the for-profit as for the non-profit. There's, there's zero difference in the way you would measure that. That's not saying that the investors or philanthropists may not care about different things, but I'm just saying whether the organization has impact and how much impact it has, you would measure in precisely the same way. The issue for impact investing, there's a second area of impact that does make a difference, if you'd like to turn to that. Sure, let's do it. So the question is, when you are making a grant or an investment, is the grant or investment making a difference? That is, is it enabling the organization to produce more of its valuable outcome than would happen if you didn't make the grant or investment? So coming back to the drug addiction treatment, although we can use another example if you prefer, the question is for the foundation or individual philanthropist who's making a grant, has my grant enabled this organization to either provide better treatment or to treat more people than would have happened if I didn't make the grant? And the parallel question for the impact investor is, has my investment enabled the organization to either provide better treatment or treat more people than if I hadn't made the investment? And the question is the same, but the answers are simpler in the context of a grant than they are in the context of an impact investment. What's the complication for the investors? So in the nonprofit area, there are almost no organizations that have as much funding as they need. So if you make a grant, the chances are very high that your grant dollars are allowing the organization, say, to treat more people because it's adding to the funding they would otherwise have. In the investing world, the question is not so simple whether your investment is actually adding to the capital or providing capital at more favorable terms than other investors would provide. Let me give you two easy examples on two sides of this. If you make an investment where you are not expecting market rate returns, where it's it's concessionary or sub-commercial, then by definition, you're providing capital that ordinary investors wouldn't because ordinary investors would never make an investment where they expected not to make a good return. And foundations sometimes make investments of that sort in for-profit organizations in order really to prove the concept with the hope that they will eventually get commercial investors. That's one way in which an impact investor can make a difference by providing more favorable terms 
than ordinary commercial investors would provide. At the other extreme, an investor in publicly listed securities can never make a difference. Because if you buy shares in a company, in a publicly listed company, that you find socially valuable, and you know, imagine a telecommunications company that's providing uh, cell phones, which are useful for many people, many poor people, the question is, is your investment in a publicly traded company of that sort, is it actually providing any capital that the investee firm wouldn't otherwise get? And the answer in publicly traded companies, publicly listed companies, is no. You buy shares and somebody else sells the shares and the price of the shares doesn't change at all. If you're willing to sacrifice some return at one end, you may make a difference. In publicly listed companies, you never can make a difference. doesn't mean you may not feel good about investing in a company that does good things or not investing in a company that you think does bad things, but you're not actually having an impact. That's right. And I think this is a really important discussion to have about how we can have an influence and, and is there a way to have an influence in public markets? These are big multinational companies. They have a really dispersed shareholder base of thousands of people. And to think that impact investing can operate through a values alignment system in the same way that it does in the private markets or with favorable terms, I think, I think you're right. That's very difficult. I am keen to dig into how we can influence those companies because we've got ESG type frames and overlays and you know, having engagement, shareholders having engagement and voting at AGMs. But before we get there, I'd like to, to wind back because we're really talking about additionality here and impact investing. And you talked about how you can have an additional impact through offering favorable terms. But there's then the, the private market investors, the, the impact investing PE investors who don't want to offer favorable terms. You want a market rate return but are still having an impact. And I think that that's a really interesting element of, of finding what are they offering? You know, if there is a market rate return available, we would assume that the market would exploit that, that there'd be plenty of, of regular investors who aren't intentional, who don't have that in, intention. So what do you think are those key factors that differentiate those type of private equity investors? There are two possibilities, and then we'll come back to the issue of influence that you mentioned later. One possibility is that the private equity investors seize opportunities because they're looking for opportunities for social impact that ordinary private equity investors are not looking for. One of the keys to being a successful venture capitalist or private equity investor is that you have an eye for opportunities that other people don't see, right? So if, if, if I were a venture capitalist on Sand Hill Road, which I'm not. And the example I will give you is why I'm not. And a couple of Stanford kids come with a poorly designed PowerPoint deck and they say, we have a system for indexing the web. I would say, come back when you grow up. And John Doerr was smart enough because he knows the space to say, I think there's really something quite phenomenal here. And from there comes Google. So even in the non-social space, in the ordinary investing space, what makes a good venture capitalist or private equity investing investor is having an eye for opportunities that other people don't see. It doesn't happen all that often, but it does happen. And similarly, you can have an impact investing fund. I think of Bridges Ventures as an example in the UK or Omidyar Network. My favorite example from Bridges 
is they invested early on in a UK fitness organization called The Gym, which provided low-cost fitness facilities for working people in the UK. And the goal was to improve their health by providing that. And at the time they made the investment, the financial success of a organization like that simply was not proven enough to attract private equity investors. Four years later, after their investment, it did extremely well. And at that point, ordinary private equity investors were attracted to it. So what I would say is that their initial investment before it was market validated had real impact or additionality, which is another way of describing impact. But once there was another round after it was successful, once it attracted ordinary private equity investors, the, the opportunity for more impact had passed. They had, they had succeeded in what they wanted to do. And at that point, investments are just plain ordinary investments without any, any special impact. I think that that's, that's really key. And that's a, a great way to explain the differentiation of how you have impact, that you're identifying these opportunities and that, as with that example, that they can dissipate going forward. And, and I guess that's the positive element that, that then you're, you know, you're having a, a good impact that it's become the norm. But I wonder, because that sort of seems to assume that the only thing that they're offering is capital. But even with the, the Google example that you said of you know, how to leverage data and this sort of thing to grow a company like Google. I think that the offering from the VC firms was more than just money. It was also expertise and, and getting deep and they wanted to help manage these guys and direct them and bring in networks. So I wonder how much of an influence do you see that as happening within private equity? And to me, that seems like a really big difference between private equity and impact investing, as opposed to the big public market investing, where it's simply impossible for you to influence management because you're only ever going to have a very small percentage shareholding. How do you see that? So I completely agree with that analysis. A, you know, the value that a venture capital firm provides to its investees is technical assistance, networking, helping with fundraising, being on the board, improving board governance and the like. So the interesting question then is what does an impact-oriented investor bring that ordinary investors don't. In a situation where the company might not otherwise focus on investment and focus solely on, rather not focus on social impact, but focus solely on financial returns, the impact investor may assist it on the impact side of things. And that's the question I think you need to ask one company at a time. And we'll come to the issue you raised later about kind of voting shares in public markets. The answer is you can have impact that way in the same way that a private equity investor can have impact through providing technical assistance. But it's a one-by-one -one question of whether the impact investor is actually doing that. And the only way to find out is to see what it's doing. I think to me, it was a bit of a light mob moment understanding this distinction of, of the power of that management influence, because it made me realize that it's then difficult for, I guess, a mainstream investor who is really focused on financial returns and is very handy with the financial metrics, but might not have, you know, skills in social development. They might not understand developing markets, but they still think, okay, we're going to jump into impact investing when a big value add is this management expertise of, of understanding the market, of understanding 
how to measure social impact of so many different factors. So do you think that that's part of this impact washing issue that we've got a lot of people that want to jump in for the term and they want to be able to brand their fun as impact when in fact they're not backed up by that that skill? And I guess the, the looking for opportunities type skill is a similar one there. Right. So, I mean, I, I think the question is just the one you asked. That is, does the investor have that skill and is the investor bringing that skill to this particular investment? And is it a skill that other investors are not bringing? Because after all, if you are producing products, say, that appeal to very poor people in developing countries, then you need financial success as well as social success in order to do that. I think those are the questions to ask. What is the impact investor bringing that an ordinary PE investor wouldn't? And I think you just have to look at each case and ask whether that's actually happening. The fact that it could happen theoretically doesn't mean it's happening with respect to a particular investment. That sort of winds around to asking you more personally from what angle you should have first approached impact investing because, you know, we're we're saying we've got to ask investors that question. You know, did you come at come at it, uh, you know, as a law professor or was it a comparison with, with philanthropy? Because I think when you come at it from a, a commercial finance angle, um, the outcomes can be quite different. So, I mean, my own interest in it came from having spent quite a lot of time studying impact in philanthropy and asking the question, how and when could investments also have impact? I've never been an impact investor myself. And the Hewlett Foundation, where I worked for 12 years, doesn't do impact investments, but I began exploring, exploring the field. Yeah, well, can you tell us a little bit about your career trajectory? It's very interesting. You've obviously been a law professor for a while, but then, uh, as you said, you've worked in foundations and that kind of thing. Can you take us a little bit further back and, and tell us about you know, what you were interested in early on in your formative years and, and how that got you to where you are today? I had been a law professor for a long time, then I became the dean of Stanford Law School. And after 12 years of being dean, I thought it was time to step down. And I was ready to go back to teaching on the faculty. My interest had already shifted somewhat from constitutional law to problem solving and decision making, although not focused on philanthropy. And then through a happy accident, I was asked if I would become president of the Hewlett Foundation. But it really did not build on my career as a constitutional law professor. It was quite, quite a new challenge. Did you have any hesitation in, in, in taking on that challenge? You know, a big step and you'd obviously made your mark, but you were shifting into something quite different. Was that shift difficult? I certainly thought a lot and consulted people before taking it on. And as it happens, and I think part of the reason that I was asked to do it was I knew a number of board members of the foundation, and some of them knew me and uh, what my skills were. So I discussed with them and with others whether this was something that I could be good at doing in the sense of being useful to the foundation and its mission. And it was a, a big bet on both of our parts, and I think it, I think it worked out for both of us. Yeah. Okay. Very good. And we've bounced around a bit with this conversation, which is fine, but um, definitely keen to then pull it back to this issue of of influencing big companies to to have an impact, but in public markets where that influence is very difficult with a very disparate shareholding. 
know your views on the topic. You know, there are some people that have listed impact funds and you haven't been shy about, about saying how, you know, you don't think that that's impact and, and they're not having an impact. But do you think that there is a middle road where, I mean, I just think that these markets are huge when impact investing currently is tiny in comparison. And it's also a way to touch point for a lot more people, for the general public who might have pension funds or a small investment on the share market. It's the way that they can touch finance and they can have an influence. How do you think we can direct that impact? So leaving aside, you know, whether merely having your dollars invested can make a difference, which which in public markets they can't. The question is whether voting shares can make a difference, whether you can influence a company to behave better in a social or environmental way. In principle, that can happen. In fact, there are very few examples of it happening, in large part because the institutions that vote the most shares are ones that appropriately given their mandate, or what they believe to be their mandate, vote stock concerned only with the ultimate value of, of the shares for the shareholders, the financial value. Could that change? It could change. Are there very many examples where institutional shareholders have voted their shares in a way that are different from what they would do for purely financial purposes. I think there are very few examples of that. So it's theoretically possible. There's no reason to rule that out. It's just not something that seems to be happening. There are indications that that mandate is changing. I mean, you've got a lot of the passive investors, the likes of Vanguard. I mean, they've got an example with pressuring you know, ExxonMobil to declare their climate risk. And, and that sort of, I guess, brought up as a one large example. And, and maybe that's isolated. But are we not heading in that direction? There is you know, the famous letter from BlackRock describing, I think, that example and also something involving gun safety. I think when you only have one or two examples, you wonder whether that's representative of a trend or whether it's just one or two examples. I think the answer is we'll have to see. It's possible for it to happen. You know, there are theories under which the large institutional investors who basically have index funds, there's a theory of, I think, sometimes called universal ownership, where the argument is that the people on whose behalf they are investing have long-term interest in environmental and social as well as financial goals. Uh, whether that actually affects the voting behavior, I just think remains to be seen. I wonder, is there then a risk if you have this tendency for groups to say that their public fund you know, is an impact fund? Is, is there a risk there of impact washing and that you know, whether or not it is having a, an impact, the level of the impact we can leave, but simply using that terminology, will it dilute people's feeling about where there is some really genuinely good work being done down the private end of the spectrum? Is there a worry about that? And is there a way that we can um, help keep these definitions pure? So I think the answer is my concern is just that. That is, I think there is a role for impact investing, but I'm concerned that the field will be given a bad name if, if there is, as you call it, impact washing. So one way in which I think an impact fund could demonstrate its seriousness would be if the fund managers are compensated for social impact as with a set of predetermined metrics, as well as for financial returns. I don't know of any fund that has that compensation scheme, but if it did, I would take it much more seriously as an impact fund. Mm, very interesting. I like it. I like it. Put the money on the line. Have a bit of skin in the game. And I guess 
that then makes me think about this sort of desire and need for scale. And that's an issue in the private markets um, where it's quite small. And, and again, the public markets sort of have this promise of scale, but perhaps that's smoke and mirrors. Do you think that there are any other ways for scale other than going for the public market direction? You have some very large, some very large funds that are in private markets. I think of TPG, their growth fund, and the Rise Fund, which which does describe itself as an impact fund, trying to have investments that meet the sustainable development goals. So my question for them, and their their theory, because they offer their investors market rate returns, their theory is the one you mentioned before about providing technical assistance, the kind of assistance that venture capitalists provide their investees, but providing it to promote social goals. I would, I would like to see is examples for each investment they make of how they do that. And I would like to see the fund managers being compensated for actually achieving impact. That would make TBG Rise a more credible impact investing fund than it is right now. Well, that's right. And to me, it's the issue of when, you know, they announce these new multi-million dollar, multi-hundred million dollar funds, that it's always that dollar figure that, that's highlighted. And that what's not highlighted is the impact they're going to have. And it would be great to have a, you know, a Bloomberg chart that that shouted out about the scale of impact, you know, it was on the rise and booming and these sorts of things. And I think we're lacking that. And, uh, and that would be a shift that would get in that direction. And again, I assume that's what the managers would, would expect if, um, if they're, their remuneration was linked to impact, which would be a, a pretty good outcome. I think that's right. Now, there's there's always a danger, you know, I mean, it it's much easier to measure financial success than it is. The metrics for that are much better established than the metrics for social or environmental success. So you would want to have compensation based on the social and environmental gains, but you also want to avoid people gaming the system. Yeah, well, that's right. You know, social impact measurement really is the tricky situation and, and right for people, for rent seekers sort of gaming it. So that's a huge issue. And um, we talk about that a lot on this podcast. And I'm sure you and I could spend another hour talking about that. But uh, you do have a tight schedule here in Sydney. So I do need to let you go. But before that, I'd love, uh, I'd love for you to give us a book recommendation, if possible, something you're reading now, maybe anything on the side table or, or something that really had a big impact on you in your career. I'm reading a totally fascinating book right now, but it doesn't relate to anything we've been talking about. Oh, that's okay. Please let us know. It's a essentially a biography of Richard Holbrook, uh, who negotiated the peace treaty in the former Yugoslavia. And biography, it's by George Packard. And it's a description of a person who was an obnoxious egomaniac, but who essentially was responsible for bringing peace to the Balkans. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating read if you're interested. He was also involved in Vietnam, which nobody succeeded in, but really played an important role in, in the Balkans. I, I would recommend that to anybody. Well, that's it. We get a lot of sort of, you know, tangential um, biographies recommended on this podcast. And, and I think it's a really worthwhile habit of reading widely and, and being able to get a perspective on that sort of diversity. And as you said, you know, for the um, effective impact investor, it's, it's having a view that others don't have, that seeing something that others don't see and reading widely about others, you know, backgrounds and, and that kind of thing is a really good way to do that. And I just thought I should mention 
you know, a lot of what we talked about and, and when I first found your name was through sort of the articles that you've published early on, there was one in 2013 that I, I recommend everyone check out. It's still stood the test of time well, unpacking the impact of impact investing. And I do go back to that to dig into some of the, the foundational framework. So yeah, I recommend people check that one out. And I'd like to say thank you, Paul, for your time today. We sort of got deep there, but just sort of skimmed the surface. And uh, it's a shame we couldn't talk for longer. But thank you for your time. And, uh, and I hope everything in Sydney goes well. Thank you as well. It was a pleasure to talk to you.